Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn in them with me again uh, to the book of Acts. We turn once again uh, to this book, which we have been studying now for uh, many weeks, many months. I think this is something like my 21st sermon uh, in this book. And uh, we are almost halfway through. And uh, my hope is that you have experienced the study of the book of Acts as more than simply an interesting history lesson in the early church. Because the Holy Spirit has given us this book not just for history's sake, but to encourage us, to guide us as a church concerning the power of the Gospel to change lives, to break down barriers, and concerning God's plan for our lives together. Not just for the first century, which was first written, not just for the ancient Mediterranean world, the context in which it was written, but for us as we sit here today. And that's been my hope for us, even as we uh, move into a new step in the life of our church. It's been my hope that this book and this study would be instructive and helpful for us as we look ahead. One of the challenges of, of preaching through the book of Acts has been Uh, The fact that Luke brings up again and again these themes. We keep returning to familiar themes and lessons that we've seen before. And as we come to chapter 3, where we find ourselves this morning in this book, Luke brings again together, once again, these several themes, and he targets them towards our collective life together as a church. Chapter 13 also, just by way of introduction before we even read it, chapter 13 also marks for us a significant shift in this book in in, in, in at least three ways. First of all, uh, the ministry center shifts from Jerusalem to now Antioch, which is where we find ourselves in chapter 13. Secondly, the main character of our story shifts from the Apostle Peter, who's been very prominent. He's not been the only guy, but he's been very prominent in the first several chapters, to now the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul. And then finally, the context of the Gospel advance shifts from Palestine to now the whole Mediterranean world, and, and we've, we've been anticipating this. We knew this was coming. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Chapters 1 through 7 of the book of Acts were pretty much Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 were pretty much Judea and Samaria. And now chapter 13 and beyond, here we go to the ends of the earth. And so chapter 13 marks all of these significant shifts as we launch with Paul on his first missionary journey. And that's where we begin this morning. I want to start in chapter 13, and I had big ambitions for this chapter in terms of what I was going to cover, and it just kept getting whittled back and back and back. And so, we're not even going to cover all that you see in your bulletin insert, verses 1 through 12. We are going to go with three verses this morning. Three verses. 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 13. Listen as I read. 
Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, Barnabas, excuse me, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want to begin this morning with a question, a very simple question, maybe one that I've asked before in weeks past. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? I know for our kids, that's a question that maybe they ask, and I know I get posed that question from time to time. Maybe some of you adults as well in your midlife crises are asking that question as well. What do I want to be when I grow up? For much of the world, it's an answer that is driven by what makes us most comfortable. That's what I want to be when I grow up. What would make me comfortable? Or what would fulfill me? And I think for, I think I can speak for most of us parents in this room, for my kids, I want their answer about what they want to be when they grow up to be different. It's not that I don't want them to be comfortable. It's not that I don't want them to be fulfilled. But it's that I want them to think about their passions and I want to think them to think about their gifts, the things that God has given them for His glory and discern about how those can be best used for Him in their lives and in their purpose. There certainly is that kind of growing up where we think about vocation, we think about career path, but there is another kind of growing up that we have talked about before in this church. There's a spiritual growing up. A couple years ago, we looked at 1 Peter. We worked our way through some of the shorter epistles, and we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, and one of the truths from that passage, from that sermon was, you need to grow up. And the point was that we as Christians, need to be constantly growing spiritually. And and that's where I want us to go this morning. I want us to think about growing spiritually, but not as individuals. Not personal spiritual growth and private prayer and Bible reading. That's not where I want us to go, although that is important. What I want us to think about this morning for the next few minutes is how we need to grow up as a church. And I don't want to tell you so much about the fact that you need to grow up. I instead want God's Word to to show us. I want you to see what a grown-up church looks like. And the kind of priorities that a grown-up church has. As we have been walking through this This process, which uh, is soon to culminate, of particularizing. You're you're so tired of hearing that word. I know you are. But as we walk through this process of particularizing, we've often used this analogy that this, for us, this is a growing up of sorts. This is a leaving of the nest, so to speak. 
But again, even as we think about growing as a church, there's a, a right and a wrong way to think about that. For some would like to say that the measure of a church growing up is budgets, buildings, and bodies. Now, all those are important. We need budgets. We need bodies. And we need a building. It's not that those things are bad. It's that those things aren't of first importance. And the church at Antioch leads us in the direction that we need to be led. And the way they do that is by becoming not just the first place where followers of Jesus are called Christians, remember that's one of their claims to fame, but also the first missionary sending church of the New Testament. Now, everything that we find in the book of Acts, and we've looked at this before, everything that we find here is not necessarily normative for our lives together. Just because they did it, we're supposed to do it. But there are some things that, yes, this is what the church is supposed to be. And so, though our context is different, we need to be striving after the same sorts of things. And Antioch, it seems to me, gives us some of those things to strive for as a church. It's not a comprehensive list, but it's an important list nonetheless. And I think it's why Luke gives us this background, why he gives us this passage. And so I want us for the next week, for this week and the next week, to look at chapter 13 and to be challenged as a church family by the church at Antioch. Frankly, it's a great time for us to do this. It's a great time for us to be thinking about what we need to be as a church, about what defines us as a church. And so there are, I think, at least, there are probably more, but I've distilled it to five things, five ways that this chapter challenges us as a church, and I know you're saying five things. It's five minutes to 11 already, Nate. Five things. Well, this is, this is my quandary this week. Is, is rather than preaching all five today in a very long sermon, I want to just scratch the surface this morning and kind of get the ball rolling and set us up for next week. And so this morning I just want to cover two things. So, sorry kids, if you've already put one through five on your outlines, there's only going to be two points today that we're going to cover. And hopefully this will result in, in two shorter sermons rather than one long, long sermon. And the first thing that I want us to be challenged by is a familiar drum that we have hit throughout this book, and it's this. A missionary church recognizes and reflects God's heart for the nations. Let me repeat it. A missionary church recognizes and reflects God's heart for the nations. It's probably best to just take a step back and talk a moment about the phrase, a missionary church. I mean, do we really want to be a missionary church? You're just assuming that we want to be that, Nate. And here's my answer. If we aren't a missionary church, we aren't the church. 
It's as simple as that. There are a lot of things, a lot of good things that the church can do. But there is at least one thing that we must do. And that is win people and build them up in Christ. Win people to Christ and build them up in Christ. I guess that's two things. As someone once said to the church, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I have commanded you. This is the heart of what we are about. Because this is the heart of who God is. It's been a plot line in God's story from the very beginning. From that first walk in the garden. After Adam and Eve had sinned. And he is trying to find them. Where have you gone? What have you done? And now in the ministry of Jesus, we're in a whole new era of the Lord seeking and saving the lost. We read John 3.16, that familiar verse. In John 3.17, the very next verse, John wrote, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Seeking and saving the lost. That's what God did, and that's what He wants His church to be about. Next week when we read the rest of chapter 13, we'll read this comment that Paul writes as he quotes this verse. But let me beat him to it. Isaiah 49.6 I will make you a light for the nations, the Lord said, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And over and over again throughout the Old Testament, the Lord declares that what brings Him glory is that the nations fear His name. That all peoples praise Him. As it's been said before, the Lord is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. And the more that are satisfied in Him, the more that worship Him and give Him the glory that He deserves, the more He is glorified. Isaiah 60, verse 3, Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Psalm 72, 11, May all kings fall down before Him. All nations serve Him. This isn't some wishful, poetic thinking of the Old Testament. This is God's goal. This is His pursuit. This will be the culmination of all history. A history that we are going to be a part of. As I prayed before, as every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. That there is only one. And all His enemies will be made His footstool. And so John, Jesus told His followers in John chapter 20, verse 21, He says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent Me, even so I am sending you. We are a missionary church. We need to be a missionary church because we are the church. And so you're asking, well, you haven't even gotten to the passage yet. How does this passage 
help us? Well, it, help us, it helps us, first of all, just by where we are in the story. And we're, we're in Antioch. We're way up in the northwestern part of Palestine. Northwestern part of Syria. We're, we're far away. And, and what does this church look like? What is the glimpse that Luke gives us into the church at Antioch? Because he doesn't give us a full picture. He just gives us a glimpse. And he does it through this, this leadership. A leadership that is diverse. It's interesting to me that Luke, in his recounting of this story, is so specific that he lists these five men, and I can't help but wonder if the purpose of listing these five men who were pillars, leaders in the church at Antioch is for the purpose of giving us a picture of what God is doing. First, there is Barnabas. Barnabas will become a familiar figure to us in the weeks to come. He's a, he's a Jew, but he's been one that has been scattered long ago. He actually grew up on the island of Cyprus, the island that he and Paul are about to head towards, just in the west, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. He would have been one that, though he is ethnically Jewish, he's familiar with the Greek culture around him. Kind of has some street smarts about him. Then there's Simeon, also called Niger. Now some of you may notice as you read through that, or as you followed me as I read through that, that there some of your Bibles might have a little footnote next to his name, also called Niger. If you go to the bottom of that footnote, you learn that Niger is also the Latin word for black or dark. And so indeed, it is believed that Simeon, this pillar in the church at Antioch, is, is dark-skinned, or he's a black man, likely from North Africa, which is exactly where Lucius, the next brother that's mentioned, was from. And then lastly, or excuse me, then we have Menean, who's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. This is not the Herod of last week. This is an earlier member of the family. But his description gives us every indication that he was a man of influence, he was a man of, of wealth and some pedigree, maybe even some royal descent. And then there's Paul. Now we all know Paul, formerly known as Saul. In fact, it's in this passage, it's specifically in verse 9, that we kind of leave Saul behind. And we make that shift from him being called Saul to now he will be called Paul. And he, of course, is one of the most well-known, zealous Jews who now is a Jesus lover. And so this is the church of Antioch. These are the five pillars of the church of Antioch, the prophets and the teachers of this church. A zealous Jew, a wealthy, influential insider, two Africans, at least one of them is black, and a, and a Cyprus-raised Levite. Five godly leaders in a distant church, far from Jerusalem, the epicenter of where it all began. And it seems to me a picture of where God is headed. Of what God is doing. You see, that's where we begin. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Is recognizing that God has a heart for the nations. And I recognize that this is something 
as we think about putting feet to the ground, this is something that we, we can't just create. We can't just snap our fingers and make this happen. We can certainly have open arms, and I hope we have open arms to whoever the Lord brings in our doors, but I recognize, I understand that we are reflective of our area. We are reflective of our current context. And so what exactly am I challenging us to do when I talk about being a missionary church that reflects the heart of God? It's this. It's to constantly put before us and to strive whenever possible to be the kind of church that reflects the nations. If God's heart is for the nations, we need to either be going ourselves to the nations, or we need to be enabling those who are going to the nations. There are no other options. We need to be thinking about. We need to be praying for. We need to be supporting. And yes, in some cases, we need to be leaving. We ourselves need to be going. A couple months ago, I had a coffee with one of the ruling elders at Exile Presbyterian Church. A guy by the name of Darren Maxfield. It was a wonderfully encouraging coffee. Darren's been a ruling elder there for many years. He's a successful accountant, I think. Works in Bellevue. Drives a nice car. I saw that on a coffee. And Darren has decided, he's got two girls in high school, and uh, he's decided that he's going to leave everything and move to the Indian Reservation in eastern Washington. And the Lord just did this. The Lord just did this last year as he and his daughter went to Sacred Road Ministries, a ministry that's tied with our denomination. Many of you have gone there before and been impacted as they minister uh, to the First Nation people there. It's a needy place. It's a depressing place in some ways, far from the, the glitz and polish of Bellevue. And yet, he's listening to God's call. And he's leaving it all behind in order to serve, in order to be poured out. I want to pray for him. I want to support him. I want to see if there's anyone from this church that might go in his wake and move there as well. American evangelicals control an annual disposable income that's estimated at $850 billion. We need to do whatever we can to reflect God's mission and God's heart for the nations. That's the first thing that I want us to see in Acts chapter 13. But there's a second, briefly, there's a second truth this morning, and it's this. A missionary church become strong in order to send. A missionary church becomes strong in order to send. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Antioch, this church, we, we, we're just getting a glimpse of them, but they seem to be a church that is flourishing. 
Leadership is in place. Worship and fasting is happening and being called for. All the things that for us are second nature are finding their beginning here in the early church. They didn't have the copies of the Scripture that just guided them in terms of how they could set everything up. They're learning as they go. They're learning through oral traditions. And yet, Antioch is a healthy, strong church. Worship for centuries had happened when you'd go to the synagogue or you'd go to the temple and the presence of God would be mediated through ritual and sacrifice and preach and now God's people are gathering together in prayer and through Jesus they have access to the Father. Strong churches, mature Churches are being established. And they are in turn becoming places of strategic mission. We don't hear anything about Antioch becoming the new Jerusalem in terms of its religious impact, in terms of its influence on the ancient world. There is no focus on buildings and budgets that we know of, but rather counterintuitively, they are about to send off Paul and Barnabas. Think about that. I say counterintuitively because something I want us to recognize at the very beginning of this passage is that not just the fact that this church was organized and strong enough to be sending strategically by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that next week. But who are they sending? They are sending their very best. Their very best. It's counterintuitive, right? We need our best here. I couldn't help but think about this. Yesterday, I was at Drew's lacrosse game. Jeff Jesse's their coach, and they were playing lacrosse, and sometimes our team borrows players. We we play these teams with just enormous squads, and sometimes we borrow some of their players, and... uh, And they play for us. They put on our jersey and they play for us. And yesterday was no different. We borrowed this player. I think his name was Trevor. And uh, Trevor played for us. And he scored like three or four goals. Right? He scored like three or four goals for us. And I was thinking, this is great. But what is the coach thinking? Like, why did I give them Trevor? Trevor's our best. I should have kept him. And here the church at Antioch doesn't seem to be concerned about the strength of its own. It's healthy. It's strong. No, it sends its best into the field in order for God's mission to be accomplished. Now, we have a lot of pride in the Presbyterian church. We have a lot of pride in our Reformed understanding of the faith. But I fear, and I've said this to you before, we need to constantly guard against that tradition and that pride and that theological framework becoming an end in itself. Our families are strong and our theology is is tight. We've got it. Again, those things are not bad things. We need good, sound theology. We need strong families. But it's exactly our theology that ought to push us out the door. 
Henry Martin once said, the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to Him, the more intensely missionary we must become. The nearer we get to Christ, the more missionary we become. Not only that, but in many cases, I think it's our kids. I hate to say this because it might come to bite me in 10-15 years, but it's our kids that we ought to be sending. That we ought to be pushing out the door. We build, we straighten, we sharpen these arrows. Remember Psalm 127? We looked at that a while back. These arrows, that we might shoot these arrows behind enemy lines. Many of you are familiar with Jim Elliott. I've quoted this before. Jim Elliott, missionary who was killed back in the 60s. He wrote in his journal at his parents' grief of, of them grieving that he was going so far to a scary place, to an unknown people group in Ecuador. And he wrote this, Grieve not then if your son seemed to desert you. Remember how the psalmist described children? He said they were a heritage from the Lord and every man should be happy who has his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of arrows? What are arrows for but to shoot? So with strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them straight at the enemy's hosts. I know that the church of Antioch is not sending children, but I think as we think about this passage, as we think about God's missionary heart, as we think about becoming strong and healthy as a church, not to be an end in ourselves, but to go, to send, to support. A church that's not simply content to maintain, but a church that is on the move. Not for our own comfort or our own glory, but for His grace and for His glory. That's the church that I want us to strive to become. That's the kind of church that we need to be when we grow up. And next week we'll continue with this theme and and pick up some more things that we can learn as we've just scratched the surface of chapter 13 in the church at Antioch. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your church. We thank you for your work in the world dating back even here to the first century as we look at the church at Antioch and all that they accomplished, all that they modeled for us. Help us, Lord. Give us wisdom as we think about our context, as we think about applying these truths to our life together collectively as Ascension Presbyterian Church. Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us passion that we might indeed reflect your heart? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.